Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today on the show, we're delighted to have Nick Panos, one of the neuropharmacologists, or I should say neuropharmacists, at Rush, where I work. Um, Nick is in the neuro ICU, where he rounds with the ICU team, the dedicated staff taking care of the patients there, as well as working very closely with the neurosurgical team, uh, rounding on everyone each day, and helping us make sure that all of the complicated medicines, drips, lines, et cetera, are appropriate for all the patients at various stages of neurologic disease. Uh, Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So Nick, I know that you've been in Chicago for all of your life. You trained and did pharmacy school at UIC before coming to Rush. Um, Why don't you tell us a bit about your background and and how one moves from general pharmacy training into neuropharmacology and and winding up in an ICU? Well, um, you know, after pharmacy school, generally, most pharmacists take a route towards doing a pharmacy residency. So after pharmacy school, I, I, I completed a pharmacy residency. It's typically PGY1, uh, where we rotate in different areas. And I, I grown a liking to critical care as a pharmacy student. Um, so I did do more rotations in critical care as a PGY1 after I graduated pharmacy school. Uh, the typical route, though, is that most pharmacists, after completing a, f- a pharmacy residency, um, and they want to work in a special area, like a specialized area, such as neurocritical care or neurology or critical care in general, uh, they, they go on and do a second year uh, specializing in critical care. And when they do specialize, they specialize in various critical care settings, one of them being a neurocritical care or neurosurgical setting. Um, others include medical, uh, general surgical um, they'll do rotations in ID, um, in the emergency room, as well as in toxicology um, and other ICU areas um, that would, you know, increase their knowledge as well as uh, their expertise in various areas of critical care. Um, but my route was a little different. Um, I finished up the PGY-1 and I went on straight into uh, a rotating critical care pharmacist uh, job as, uh, as my first job. And from there, I built into my expert. My, I built my expertise in neurocritical care, um, as well as neurosurgery, by rounding uh, with the neurosurgical team at my at the job that I had, at my first job. And from there, um, you know, working alone and you know, learning all the tricks of the trade, asking all the questions that I needed to ask, you know, of all the neuro, you know, to the neurosurgeons that I worked with, residents and attendings. I also worked with neurologists uh, at the time, so I gained a lot of experience in my first job which got me to where I am today. Uh, so there's different paths. You know, the typical path, though, is going the route of uh, PGY-1, general pharmacy uh, residency, and then going on to do a second year in critical care. Now, Nick, I always love when we have guests from different professional backgrounds on the show because we can get an insight into the different worlds that people move through in their training and then eventually getting out into practice. So I wonder just in, in broad strokes that, you know, I, I don't think anyone has numbers on hand off the top of their head, but uh, folks who go to pharmacy school and then go out into practice, what's the general breakdown on who goes into kind of a subspecialty field like yourself and does inpatient work 
versus who becomes a, a pharmacist that most people would see and interact with at, at a pharmacy at a store out in the community? Oh, wow. Uh, it's a great question. I think over the years, uh, there's been a I think I think the numbers are the same. I, I'm I'm just guessing right now because I'm only going off based on what I know from my past. Uh, but more and more students coming out of pharmacy school now are going into a pharmacy residency. So the breakdown, if I had to give you a percentage, I I would say 80-20. So 80% maybe going to retail or other areas outside of inpatient. Uh, maybe 20% go into inpatient inpatient hospital and then. Out of those that go into inpatient, I, you know, most, I would say the greater majority, greater than 90% are doing pharmacy residency now um, on the inpatient side. Um, but again, it could be 70-30, it could be 80-20. I'm not 100% sure. I'm not at a pharmacy school and I don't know all the statistics. So I'm going based on what I've, you know, asked other pharmacy students when they rotate with me. So Nick, that's very interesting. And, and we have a diverse audience. So not everybody's in the United States. And I know Pharmacists are called different uh, labels in different countries, like druggists and whatnot. But I assume you're a PharmD, correct? Correct. I uh, I completed my doctor of pharmacy. Okay, great. So tell us a little about the role that you play, because um, you know it, it does vary by institution and nation. What exactly is your role when you are in the ICU with the neurosurgery or neurointensive team? How do you fill that role? How do you assist the team in in their effort to take care of patients? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I feel like my role is essential. Um, as a pharmacist in the neuro ICU, as well as working with, you know, all the, the physicians and the nurses that are involved in the care of the patient, you know, I'm there as a, a drug information specialist. Um, you know, neurosurgeons have a lot of questions about drugs, you know, and I think, uh, you know, part of it is you know, you're focused in the OR, um, you know, and you're focused on your patient and, and the surgery that you're doing for your patient and the post-op care as well. Um, so, you know, it's a symbiotic relationship between myself, uh, you as a neurosurgeon, as well as the neurointensivists and the nurses and everyone taking care of the patient at the same time, uh, because there are drugs that you don't know about. And that's, you know, things that I'm here to help you answer, uh, you know, from a pharmacokinetic standpoint, um, you know, we're here to help you dose medications better. Uh, we'll help you understand the side effects of the, uh, of the medications that you're giving to your patients. Uh, you know, we're offering um, a second look at the orders that you're, you're placing for your patients. Um, you know, so we're working collaboratively with you um, as a surgeon and a physician to make sure that we're optimizing the care of the patient and doing it in a safe way. So Nick, that, that's a perfect transition to, I think, what I most wanted to talk about with you today, which is the actual functional mechanics of dealing with neurosurgeons, dealing with intensivists, when sometimes you're the person who has to tell us that we're not doing the right thing or we're not using a drug appropriately. Um, we often joke about how, because of the very nature of the patients we take care of and the diseases we treat, there's not a lot of strong evidence for practices of the neurosurgery because the trials would never be approved. They'd be unethical because our patients are so sick. And so I feel like most of the times you walk into our workspace at, at Rush and I see you come in the room, I go, okay, Nick, what are we doing wrong today? And you know, you're, you're right. You're interacting with the residents on the team and we have our marching orders from our attendings. And a lot of the practices that neurosurgeons advocate for are from tradition or from experience or from our guts or, or what people have seen work in the past. 
And you're obviously dealing with people who are highly trained professionals, maybe have big egos in some cases. How do you navigate those waters where you have to advocate for what your literature tells you may be appropriate when you're dealing with a neurosurgeon or a neurointensivist who has in their mind, this is the right thing to do. This is what I want to do. And those may be in conflict. Right. Um, this is great. This is a great question. You know, this is something uh, that, you know, it takes a lot of experience and you have to learn how to work with people. You know, I think that that's the, I think the basic thing that I took into this, you know, when I started rounding with neurosurgeons and neurointensivists, uh, because our, our interests are the same. Uh, our interests are the patient. And I feel like, you know, when working with neurosurgeons and other physicians, um, we have to come to a consensus. You know, I'm trying to understand what your goals are for the patient. I'm trying to relay what my, you know, what my recommendations are, goals for the patient. And we try to come together and make um, a shared decision. And I think um, we have to respect that. I think we're all professionals. Um, you know, from an evidence perspective, you know, pharmacists are key to understanding um, the evidence uh, around medication use. Uh, we're the experts in, uh, you know, medication delivery. Uh, so I think giving that, you know, information to you is important as a pharmacist because you may want to give something, you know, like a medication, but you may not be able to just because of we don't, you don't, we don't have the ability to based on the type of formulations that are available or what's available at the hospital. So, you know, overall, I've learned that, you know, you know, focusing more on from a neurosurgery perspective, I've realized that, you know, I've had to change the way the, I deliver some of my, uh, my recommendations. And I think most of it is because of the time constraints that you have and the patient load that you have. You know, I can't come in there and call you or page you and do all these things all the time to tell you, you know, what I'm thinking and what I think you should be doing with a certain medication dose or frequency. So I've learned that, you know, based on your bill, based on your um, your schedule and the, the patient load that you have, I have to target my interventions in, in groups. So, for example, you know, when I come in to the neurosurgery work areas or into the office to discuss patients with you, um, I try to go through every single patient um, so we can make a shared decision or, you know, provide my recommendations about what you need to do for your patients from a medication standpoint. So I've learned that, you know, time management is essential and giving you all the information in one quick, um, almost like a soundbite, you know, per patient is really important to help you manage your time as well as convey my recommendations to you. Um, so that's kind of how I've learned from, uh, you know, for me, at least with in terms of um, providing recommendations and working together with the neurosurgery residents um, specifically. You know, over time, um, you know, this relationship grows, we, we, we form trust and we work better together. And I feel like, you know, over the years, residents appreciate that, you know, and I think a lot of the attendings appreciate that too, because I'm, I know how busy you guys are. You know, I've, I've worked with neurosurgeons for so long and I feel like, I don't want to take away your time and constantly, you know, page you and do all the things um, or take you away from other things when I know I can deliver a succinct message to you about what um, I feel like you guys need to do with your patients. So, Nick, it's interesting. The, the number of medications that are available has probably doubled or more so than that in the years that I've been practicing. So things are becoming super complicated for us. So we appreciate all that you do for us. 
what are some resources? I mean, you obviously have to keep up to speed on all these numerous medications, the side effects, the problems, the current literature. For the, for the doctors out there, what do you recommend that they go to for research? I remember Hippocrates was big when I was a resident. What are the best resources for folks who want a, a, a pocket pharmacist? It's not the equivalent, but something where they can get a quick resource on the medications, the dosing and, and administration uh, and usage and whatnot. Sure. Yeah, my go-to is actually LexiComp. Um, it's a server that's provided by most hospitals. Um, you can download it on your smartphone. Um, it's available as an app. Um, that's my go-to reference, like quick reference for drugs. I think it's, in my in my opinion, it's better than Hippocrates. Um, it gives you all the, inf- you know, I would say the majority of indications you would you would need to give certain medications. Um, the dosing um, it also provides information on renal dosing and hepatic dosing also gives you a, a percentage breakdown of the type of side effects you should expect to see in some of these, uh, some of the patients that you're giving various medications to. Um, so that's my go-to, you know, I like that one the best. Um, there's also micromedics, uh, which is another good one. Um, I'm not, I don't keep that one on my phone. That's more of a, a more detailed reference. Um, there are many other references, but if I had to choose the best one, uh, Lexicomp is, in my opinion, the, the best. Okay. Spell that out. It's on, it's in the iTunes store, I assume, or Apple store. Yeah, it should, it should be there. It's L the, it's spelled out L E X I C O M P Lexicomp. It's one word. It has drug interactions. It has calculators on there, uh, a comprehensive drug library. Um, it does require a subscription, but like I said, most hospitals and, you know, pharmacy schools, medical schools, they do have, this available through their um, library. Well, Nick, kind of drawing on that in terms of references and resources, maybe, uh, you know, I, I always like to bring the resident perspective into these things. We often talk at work about some of the medications that we try to use or frequently use that maybe there's not, uh, as I said before, not overt evidence for, but perhaps even some studies these days that are showing minimal effect, if any. And so I wonder if for the residents and, and, and the up-and-coming students uh, and junior folk listening to our show, if you could maybe give us a list of maybe one to three specific realms of, of agents that you and your experience working with neurosurgeons have most often had to bring us back in line on, so to speak. So if it's AEDs, if it's anticoagulants, if there are three things that you could ask neurosurgery residents to look into the most recent evidence and data about maybe, what would those be? So I think number one, in my opinion, since you guys, um, you know, from an anticoagulation standpoint, you know, we have patients that come in and they need to be reversed. If there was anything that I feel like, you know, as a, as a budding neurosurgeon, um, what I feel like I, I think that you guys should really focus on is anticoagulation reversal. Uh, Become an expert in that. You know, there's uh, more and more data and more and more, not not only data, but there are going to be more reversal agents coming out in the near future. And it's really important for you to know as a surgeon what they are, uh, because, you know, you're going to, you're going to have to operate on someone that needs to be reversed immediately. And I feel like, you know what they're on and you know what the type of agent you can use to reverse um, their anticoagulation, uh, the better it is for you. Uh, because you're, it's like I said, this happens like 
all the time. I mean, I would say at least three or four times a week. Um, here, we're getting patients transferred and need to be reversed uh, for various anticoagulants that they're receiving. Um, so yes, that's number one, in my opinion. Um, for those of you going into like neuroendovascular, you know, that want to do more, um, you know, treatment of, you know, stenting of, you know, uh, for ischemic stroke or, you know, and, and just in general, just knowing um, antiplatelet agents is really important as well. Um, we have aspirin, which is the go-to, you know, there's clopidogrel, there's ticagrelor, there's prasugrel. Knowing those, I think, are really important. And I think that goes hand in hand with anticoagulants as well, knowing their mechanism of action, um, knowing their pharmacokinetics. Um, this is where I come in because, you know, there's times where you want to do surgery, an elective case, let's say it's an elective spine, you need to know how long you need to hold anticoagulants or antiplatelets for. Um, this is really good to know um, because uh, you're going to, it's something you're going to deal with all the time. I mean, uh, pretty much every day. Um, and if there's anything else, like a third thing, oh man, um, I would say those are my top two. I can't really think of another off the top of my head. I wish I could say no everything, but that's not the case. Um, but, you know, oh, anti-epileptics are really important. Um, let me just say that. You know, um, you're going to get patients that are coming in, um, let's say with a trauma, Knowing the literature around which agent is uh, best to use, you know, some people say phenytoin is better. Um, there's more evidence, and that's why we use it more. Others say levetiracetam may be an option. Uh, but knowing your your anti seizure medications as a neurosurgeon is really important as well. Um, I, that that goes across the board, you know, in, not just in neurosurgery, but if you're going to be practicing in neurocritical care, um, everyone's that's coming into the unit. Ninety five percent of patients that are coming in. Uh, to our unit are going to be on some form of uh, anti-seizure medications, whether it's for prophylaxis or treatment. Um, so, yeah, those would be the big three. You know, along those lines, Nick, talk to us about the opiate crisis and how you see it as a pharmacist. We as surgeons obviously have uh, strong opinions all over the place on this, but tell us about how that has affected you as a pharmacist, uh, either in terms of the global impact, in terms of regulatory aspects, in terms of maybe conflict with patients and doctors. What have you seen with that? Yeah, for me, it's more of an inpatient thing. Um, so I think for us as pharmacists, we always try to minimize narcotic. We always try to recommend uh, minimizing narcotic use in our patients if we can. Um, it's difficult at times uh, for some of uh, the patients that are coming in, especially your post-op patients that are in a lot of pain. But I think one of the strategies we've adopted in the last year, um, especially with one of our attending neurosurgeons, we've created a system, or excuse me, an order set using non-narcotic options in our patients. Um, this is true not only for craniotomies, but for um, spine patients too. So we're using more multimodal pain therapies to reduce the narcotic burden in our patients. And working with pharmacists to do that is really important because um, what we're finding, at least here in the things that we're doing at Rush, is that, you know, the narcotics that are being prescribed may not really need to prescribe them, you know, when they leave the hospital, especially for some of the craniotomies, uh, with the craniotomy patients. Just to give you an example, um, with the craniotomy patients in, in particular, um, there's a fear that, you know, anti, uh, these anti-inflammatory or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs may be harmful because they may increase the risk for bleeding in, in patients post-op. 
but we're, we're actually, we completed a study where we looked at, you know, using a non-opioid pathway here for um, one of our attendings patients, and we found that their narcotic burden was significantly decreased. Uh, and we also didn't see any post-operative complications. Uh, so, you know, I think there, you're going to see more and more evidence of using multimodal strategies, reducing narcotics in patients um, that require neurosurgery, whether it be spine or, you know, cranial. Well, Nick, uh, we want to respect your time, but thank you so much for joining us on the show today. As I said, it's always a wonderful learning experience to get an insight into another professional discipline's day-to-day and kind of the route to practice. And of course, from a resident, from a training perspective, uh, the information you shared and the, the routes of inquiry you suggested for those coming up in the field to focus on is invaluable. So Nick, thank you so much for joining us today on the Neurosurgery Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.